I'd like you to meet Eric. He lives in Somerset in the West Country of Britain. He can knit, mend and darn, and he's also been a cross-stitcher and a sewer. He's made his own fitted sheets and pillowcases. These days he makes teddy bears for refugees and also knits squares for blankets to be donated to charity. He's 97. His journey as a maker started in 1942 when he was conscripted into the Navy at the height of the Second World War. I had to learn how to sew and darn and launder. You've got to remember everything was by hand in those days. Well, what else could you do? There was no option, you just had to do it. Well, if you didn't, you'd soon have a, a leading hand on your neck telling you you're filthy and uh, if you don't do it, we'll scrub you down. After the war, Eric came home, married and had children. And unusually for a man of his generation, he always did the ironing. But he gave up the sewing and mending skills he'd been forced to learn on board ship until something happened later in his life which led him back to cloth. Welcome to Haptic and Hugh's first series of podcasts, which looks at textiles of all kinds down the centuries and thinks about the role they play in our lives. I'm Jo Andrews and I'm a hand weaver and a broadcaster. Haptic means the feel of something and Hugh describes the pure spectrum of colours. Since this series of podcasts started, more than 250 people have subscribed to the newsletter so that they can get the podcast directly in their inbox and stay up to date with what we're doing. Thank you to each and every one of you. For this episode, I counted up every subscriber. And judging only by names, it's clear the overwhelming majority of you are women. In fact, there are only three brave men amongst you. And it seems to me this is not unusual. I expected this. All of the guild meetings over the years I've been to have been predominantly attended by women. And that's what this episode is about. It looks at why in industrial northern societies, in Europe and North America, and Australia and New Zealand, it's almost exclusively women who learn the skills and crafts of soft materials and work hard to conserve them, seeing value and pleasure in them. Whereas many men seem close to frightened of them, almost as if their masculinity will evaporate if they pick up a knitting needle or sit down at a sewing machine. In another life, I ran gender workshops for charities and commercial organizations. To break the ice and show how pervasive these stereotypes are, I would ask everyone there to name one thing they did that was typical for their gender, and one thing they wished they could do that was outside traditional gender roles. It always amazed me the number of times men came back and said they wished they'd taken up knitting or embroidery. They could sense the joy this gave their mothers, wives, sisters and daughters. And yet, because they were men, they felt this was barred to them. 
As I made this episode and talked to men who do work with textiles, one theme that came through strongly was that more men than you think sew, crochet, weave and knit. But many of them do it almost covertly, unless there's been a disaster in their lives that breaks through the constraints. And this is where Eric is important. He was forced to learn these skills in the Navy, left them to one side afterwards, and then something happened. So the next time that uh, sewing came into being, as it were, was in 1992, in March, when I had a stroke, which left me unable to use my hands, and the only way I could get them working was sewing again. And that's when I took to sewing fitted sheets and a pillowcase for two. And when I'd done that, my wife taught me to have to knit. And when I came to a tricky part, I passed it over and she did it. I wouldn't say working with them, trying to get them the feel of a needle and things like that was enjoyment, was something I had to do to get the use back into my fingers. Eric is a good knitter and sewer. He's a member of a knit and natter group. But he's clear that this is something he does, not because he gets enjoyment from it, but because he has to, to keep his hands working. It's helped me at, at various times of my life. I mean, it's just accidents in life. It's never been, a, as it were, a hobby as such. Well, what else am I going to do? There's nothing on television very much. I can read, but there's not much else, is there? And he doesn't have any truck with the idea that other men might think this was odd. Don't start me off about men. I haven't a lot of time for a lot of men. One organisation that does have a lot of time for men is Fine Cell Work in the UK. It's a charity that teaches mainly male prisoners to cross-stitch and embroider. Their work is skilled and exceptionally beautiful. I've posted pictures on the Haptic and Hugh website. Fine Cell Work demands high standards from the men. It teaches them new skills and sells their work to generate income for them and their families. I wanted to talk to one of those they've trained for this episode, but British prisons are currently on strict lockdown, with the post as the only method of communication. It isn't easy for the charity to get supplies in and out of jails at present, let alone arrange for a prisoner to do an interview. But we do have written accounts from prisoners. And it's clear that apart from having something to do while spending incredibly long periods in their cells, they find value and enjoyment in the work, and they write movingly about their stitching craft. Here's Yusef's story, read by a friend of mine. Hello to you all, and I hope this finds you all well and safe. 
Being in prison can be very difficult at times. There are so many things to deal with on a daily basis. We cannot change our pasts or the world we live in, but we can change for the better. Meeting the Fine Cell team and being part of it is very rewarding. As with most prisons, we're in lockdown, and with this comes a lot of boredom. With the boredom and being confined to a small cell for so many hours, in some cases can cause mental health issues. I have in the past suffered with mental health issues, and keeping myself occupied really helps me through the long days and nights. Fine cell work keeps me occupied, and for so many reasons is an uplifting experience. I take great pride in my work. This alone, when seeing the finished product, gives me great satisfaction. And here's Tony's story, which for me gets to the heart of why these skills are joyful. It's not just about the sewing and getting paid, which some might suggest is the motivation, nor is it about filling sometimes long and arduous hours of free time, though that is true for some. No, what I find most gratifying about fine cell work is my, that my efforts are not judged in the light of my crimes, nor the fact that I'm in prison, but rather on their own merits, the artistry, the attention to detail and the aesthetic pleasure they give to people. That truth and the knowledge of it is sometimes more valuable to me and more illustrative of a truly rehabilitative approach than many I've come across in the prison system. Thank you to Fine Cell Work and all those members of the public who continue to support our endeavours. You show us what our work and thereby we are truly worth. So here are men who, when the gender barriers are overcome, enjoy textile skills and derive self-worth from them. And earning money in prison is no small feat, so less risk of being laughed at. There are lots of other men, too, who down the centuries have knitted or sewn. Wounded and convalescent men in hospitals. Lighthouse keepers locked up for long, dark nights offshore knitting ganzies. Men and boys knitting socks and hats for soldiers in both world wars. Like Eric, they accept at times that this is something useful they can do. But what about men who freely choose to knit and sew as a hobby? How difficult is it for them? I was always my own person. I grew up in an environment in the south of the United States, uh, Georgia and Alabama, and that is what everyone refers to as football country. One of my uncles was a college football star, and (laughs) so there was a lot of pressure for me to be a football player. I have the build, as you can see. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to I wanted to play music. I wanted to create. I was more interested in making things and uh, creating things than running around chasing a football. Joe Sullins is a big white American man from the southern states who has a great beard. He looks as though you might find him driving a pickup truck after a day's hunting. But no, He spins, knits, embroiders, weaves and crochets and loves it. But he admits he's been ridiculed for it. Oh, oh my gosh, relentlessly. Yeah, I mean, it was tough. But the best way I can explain it is I have a Ravelry account. And most of the people I know on Ravelry have all of these very creative names and they're all you know it's it's clever puns or uh what have you and yet my name is it's joe sullins it's me and it's and people say well why didn't you 
come up with something. And the, the truth of the matter is that at the end of the day, who else am I going to be? Who I already am. I should probably credit my mother because uh, she was also quite headstrong and made, you know, she <laughs> fostered that in me. Joe was lucky enough to have the support of both his mother and his father. He says his mother was his most vehement ally and that his father has always been wonderful and open to change and difference. Nonetheless, the pressure to conform to his gender type was intense. The funny thing is that it was just outside of our fam our immediate family where the pressure was greatest. I mean, I had uncles that, again, were football stars, hunters, and they were all, oh, you have to be a man, you know, this is how things work and you don't do this and that. And yet again, if I didn't have the fierce and stolid support of my father and my mother, I don't know. It has taken Joe great courage to develop his skills and to be open about practicing them for pleasure. But he has endured, and his work is wonderful. Lace knits, fine needlepoint, weaving and spinning. He thinks the root of these problems lie in the association these crafts have with the home. A lot of these crafts, like knitting, needlework, sewing, a lot of those originate from home decoration. So I think a lot of that has been, unfortunately, well, not fortunately, unfortunately, but you know, it's been relegated to women as caretakers of the home. The French have a descriptive and disparaging word for this. They describe those skills that are practiced as hobbies in the home as chiffon, flimsy, amateurish, and associated with women. I hope that as gender definitions become more fluid, these terms will disappear and everyone however they define themselves, will feel able to enjoy these skills. Joe Sullins thinks that in the past, schools have had a lot to answer for in reinforcing rigid gender divisions. I'm a child of the 70s, so everyone in high school, junior high, high school, most of the boys took shop or some sort of trade-related skill stuff, and the girls all did home ec, home economics, which would included the sew, include sewing, cooking, pretty much everything. But he believes things are changing for the better. Years ago, we had a local yarn shop, and I used to teach uh, several classes. You know, emergencies like I'm stuck and I don't know where how to figure this out. But because of my close work with that shop, I saw tons of young professional men coming in to pick up knitting. I remember meeting a couple of guys that were traveling insurance executives, and they would wind up doing seminars in various places. And this, this one fellow says, well, I like to have something small like socks to take around or a scarf so that when I'm in the hotel, I can just you know, sit there, watch TV and, and decompress. I, I, I remember meeting a few doc, uh, medical students that were also picking up knitting uh, or crochet. One of the nice things about our current day and time in, 
in history is that all the crafts are are really not as gender biased i think as they used to as they maybe once were i feel like knitting has somehow previous really transcended <laughs> normally your grandmother and your your mother that knitted socks and sweaters not necessarily your uncle or or father but then you have major and popular football players like Rosie Greer publishing needlepoint books Rosie Greer is a male African American former football player who published a book called Needlepoint for Men in 1973 Joe Sullins though remains a complete enthusiast for all the fiber crafts <sighs> I love the ones the one that I do at the at the moment I do it <laughs> but but and 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 that's that's really honest because when i whenever i pick up something that i haven't done for a while i'm like oh, wow i love this i am so excited and then i start thinking about other projects to make and then but you know so it really is whichever one i'm working on i get really excited about it i used to be just a, a, a knitter it was that was all i did for years and years and i've i've knit probably anything and everything four or five times over that you can make with knitting uh, i've done it and i still love it and oh my god making sweaters is so gratifying. He's a firm believer that fiber crafts and soft making are good for people's health, and he thinks they could help address the epidemic of self-harm and suicide, particularly amongst young men in western societies. It can mirror and and become a part of our lives and represent those times that are Okay, maybe I had a tough time, but look at what I've created since then, or which what I've been able to do in spite of. So there is a small but determined movement in western societies of male knitters, quilters, spinners, and sewers. There have always been more male weavers, as the technology, humble as it is, seems to deter them less or interest them more. We think of this as new and cutting edge and transcending gender boundaries. But I can almost hear the astonishment of men from other cultures who are and always have been intimately involved in making and enjoying textiles. But I think in the bigger picture, men have always played a big role in the creation and production of textiles in African culture. You know, most of the weaving in African culture was traditionally done by men. Now that's changing. Um, I have certainly seen women kente cloth weavers in Ghana, but traditionally many, many important textile roles were performed by men. That's Precious Laval, Associate Professor of Fashion, Design and Textiles at Moore College of Art and Design in Philadelphia. She has a wide knowledge of the textile practices of African and African diaspora communities. She's also an inspired and very well-regarded artist working with cloth. 
She describes herself as a stitching griot. A griot is a storyteller in the West African tradition who has the responsibility of carrying on the narrative thread of a particular culture, city or family. Precious says, when I pick up a piece of fabric, a needle and thread, I'm reminded of how stories and histories are revealed in cloth and clothing. Excluded, undertold and forgotten stories, combined with a passion for making and materials, merge and unfold as new storylines. I look at uh, Ashoke in uh, Nigeria, and that was traditionally woven by men. You look at Kuba cloth from the Democratic Republic of Congo, which was formerly Zaire. Um, it's a collaborative effort between men and women. The men weave the ra raffia base cloth, and the women um, embroider the patterns. Um, and these patterns that the women embroider are held in their memory. Let's see. Oh, Bogolanfini, Malian mud cloth, is also a collaborative effort. The Kano indigo dye pits, which I believe were established, established in like 1498 um, in Nigeria. They're staffed by men who do the indigo dyeing there. Uh, in Ghana again, the Asafo flags, the beautiful Asafo flags, are um, appliqued primarily by men. And again, all of these traditions are starting to pivot and women are doing many of these things now, but I'm talking about traditional uh, production. The prestigious Hausa robes of northern Nigeria were traditionally embroidered by men. So weaving, dyeing, embroidery, applique, all of these things. Men have been involved in textile production uh, on the African continent for as long as it has existed. And by the sound of it, carefully guarded their knowledge and their own skills. Prussia says that if you suggested to these male textile makers that their practice should somehow just be the domain of women, they would disagree. It was never anything that was looked down upon. It was actually something that was honored and respected. So as long as you're doing something that's honorable and that your culture respects, uh, why would you, know, you think that you were doing something less than or something that only belonged in the world of women? She traces the loss of this respect and the disappearance of textile practices amongst men in Western societies to the Industrial Revolution, which mechanised production and relegated handmade to the home. Maybe because after the Industrial Revolu Revolution it became sort of the, the realm of women and women have decided to protect the things that they had such a big part in developing. I think that there is a sort of global movement at the moment of going back to traditional textiles and trying to preserve them as so much technology is um, coming into the world with regard to cloth and clothing production. I think women know how much, you know, time, effort and knowledge and skill goes into all of these practices. And they know that these things should not be lost to technology. And I am not anti-technology, but I'm saying that they both need to coexist. And I think that's a part of the, you know, slow fashion movements and slow textile movements and really trying to preserve these traditions. 
And I think maybe, and I'm certainly not an expert on this, but that men have just sort of abandoned these, these ideas on a grand scale. Uh, men certainly still do these things. But I just think that women, uh, maybe perhaps at this moment, have a greater appreciation for them. But interestingly, she had good male role models in her own family. But when I look at my own family, um, and I'm African-American, my father always had a sewing machine for hemming his pants and for doing minor repairs. So it was normal within our family. My dad's older brother, my Uncle Jim, he did needlepoint. He um, stitched a reproduction of the unicorn rest in the garden from the unicorn tapestry series that were developed between 1495 and 1505, I believe. So it was not unusual in my own family for men of African descent to sew and do needlepoint. And did they attract ridicule for that? No, nobody was going to mess with the men in my family and tell them that they absolutely did not. Now, I don't know that they're maybe they're friends or something, but no. As far as I knew, again, because it was something that all the women in my family did, my, all of my great aunts and my grandmother, as I said, my mother, everyone had the ability to sew beautifully. I was really blessed to come from a family that had these traditions. And there was just nothing unusual about the fact that my dad and his brothers could sew and stitch. It was normal. She too tracks the rigid gender divide in the practice of these skills to the school programs of the post-war period when boys did shop and girls did home economics. That certainly, that absolutely played a big part in that divide. To be perfectly honest, it's, it's sad because so many of those programs have been um, eliminated from high school curriculum now. You know, we're finding at the university level that some very basic skills, students are now coming into university without them. Basic stitching skills and engineering skills that can be developed from both sewing and woodworking, you know? So they're lacking in some of those skills and I really think that they should be reintroduced to high school curriculum, maybe even middle school but they should not be gender specific. Anyone that wants to take any of them should be allowed to. And she thinks our societies are infinitely poorer for not practicing and teaching these skills. Oh my gosh, I, I just think that all of those things involve you know, critical thinking and planning and developing you know, a, a course of action. And I think that is applicable in every aspect of our lives. So I think it's really important to do those things for, for very basic reasons. But there's more than that, and both Precious and Joe understand this very well, as I think do most makers. Using our hands to create things or repair them gives us a sense of satisfaction and a release from our troubles. It also gives us a connection to humanity that transcends gender, politics, culture, and geography. It attaches us to the people who have gone before us and those who are yet to come, who have and will join us in darning, sewing, quilting, knitting, weaving, or spinning. 
and derive pleasure from practising their skills, using their hands and eyes to protect their families and communities and to tell their own stories. Oh, absolutely. From my own personal practice, I have said to people many, many times, stitching has saved my life. Now, I don't mean anything super dramatic, but what I mean is I can be really stressed about something and I can pick up a needle and thread and start to stitch and two things can happen and sometimes both of them happen. I can completely forget about whatever my trouble was or as I'm stitching, I work it out. You know, I calm down, it's methodical. It is the most amazing experience when I pick up a needle and thread. I've, I have often said, stitching is not second nature to me, it's first nature to me. I think about it every day. If I could, I would stitch every day. It is the thing that, that connects me to myself and the thing that connects me to the world at large. It is just, it, literally, it's like, stitching my life together constantly, stitching things together to make them make sense. It really is for me. Joe Sullins gets the final word. At least from my perspective, there's something really wonderful and satisfying about taking something in your hands and using oftentimes really simple tools to make something that you can use and and appreciate and and also still handle. I like to cook and I love baking and that's a lot of that is the process of doing things with your hands and and making something. But after it's eaten, it's gone. <laughs> it's it's now a memory, you know, a faded memory. When you make something some kind of textile something with your hands, even art or stitchery, what na what have you, anything you do with your hands, it's always going to be so much more satisfying when you have a product, a finished product to appreciate, maybe pass on, uh, maybe give away. This episode of Haptic and Hugh was written, narrated and edited by me, Joe Andrews. Many thanks to Precious Laval, Joe Sullins and Eric Bacon for sharing their thoughts and their making practice with us. You can see pictures of them and some of their work at www.hapticandhugh.com forward slash listen. You can find show notes there and I provide a complete transcript of this podcast, as well as a list of resources and background reading that you might enjoy. You can sign up there to get these podcasts directly into your inbox and have a chance to win the textile-related gifts that I give away with each episode. You'll also find blogs and other information about textiles and haptic and hue there. Next time will be the last episode in this series. To finish off, we will be reaching right back into the past to find out how the world communicated the idea of changing fashions before printed drawings, photographs and moving pictures made it easy. 
we'll be following the fate of a doll called Pandora through the firelight of European history from the medieval era right up to today. Join me next time and thanks for listening. <laughs>